Hey, Mel. Bri here. Gotta work from home today because the whole family caught a nasty... Daddy! Hey, Mikey! If you're gonna puke, find the popcorn bowl! But my availability is 110%. Coincidentally, so is my fever. <laughs> Kidding. Mel, I'm so cold but hot. Uh, but I'm gonna get you that budget. Just as soon as... Right. Mikey! Popcorn bowl! Press 1 to use Instacart and get your family's sick day essentials delivered in as fast as 30 minutes. Press 2 to keep working. Do not press 2. Just use Instacart. Brian. <laughs> From NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Rock. and welcome back to Truth and Justice. We've reached a point in our investigation as early as it is where we've already run into a roadblock. The main thing we're trying to accomplish right now is to determine Becky's timeline, and a big part of her timeline revolves around Robert Pape. After I aired his interview two weeks ago, the discussion page lit on fire. Everyone has an opinion, and so do I, but I wanted to get professional ears and eyes on it. So I've invited from the L.A. Not-So-Confidential podcast, Dr. Shiloh and Dr. Scott, two forensic psychologists, to analyze the interview and break it down for us. This is Season 12, Episode 4, The Interview. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that you did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, I am joined by the hosts of the L.A. Not-So-Confidential podcast. I've met both of you when you've been on True Crime Binge. Um, just wanted to check out your show. I've become fascinated with your show since then and uh, realized that you guys, when we talked last year, that you guys are a resource that I've been dying to tap into, and we finally have our chance with this case. So if you guys can first kind of just tell us uh, a little bit about who you are and what you do, and why you are a resource to me. I guess uh, we'll start with you, Shiloh. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having us, Bob. We appreciate the opportunity. I am a licensed psychologist in California. I am a forensic psychologist by trade. I have a doctorate in psychology in forensic psychology. I spent the majority of my career working with previously incarcerated persons, as well as people getting ready to go into prison. And now for the last five years, I've been a law enforcement psychologist. So I work with a large law enforcement agency doing clinical work with officers and civilians, as well as operational consultation. And I'm part of the crisis negotiation team. So um, that can include teaching as well as at academy level um, and training in officer wellness. So uh, I started this podcast almost five years ago with 
my my bestie over here, Dr. Scott, who's also a forensic psychologist. Yeah. So me, I um I am also a forensic psychologist by trade. My schooling was similar to Shiloh's. Uh, I went to strictly, well, not strictly, but I went to a clinical doctoral program with an emphasis in forensics, whereas Shiloh went for a, a like a primarily forensic program. Um, and what did I do after that? Uh, and the reason I went into the doctoral program is I had already gotten my master's in clinical psych thinking that I was going to be a, a, like a private practice therapist. And I really enjoyed the work. I had been in uh, entertainment in various uh, aspects of the entertainment industry out here in Los Angeles for a good 20 years. And I was ready for something um, that had a pension, basically, because right. I, I had a gra- I had a great run in entertainment and loved it. And but there's a saying out here that entertainment is a harsh mistress because you you have a blast, but there is no security in your job unless you're really in the top one to three percent. And and I was not really at that level. Um, so I found something that I was really passionate about at the master's level. But then I got halfway through the program and I was my neurons were crackling. I was like, I want more. I got to get more. And then I fell by chance into a program that had an emphasis in forensics. And I was lucky enough to have two or three specialist professors that took me aside and said, you're really good at this. Like you, you really get certain things about, um, the, the juxtaposition or the nexus between, um, the field of psychology and law. You're really taking in these concepts and by the way, this is what you can do with it, which I had no idea what you could do with it, really. But then in my year, our fourth year, which was a full-time internship, Shiloh and I met working at a forensic site with pre- and post-incarceration sex offenders. And Shiloh and I immediately hit it off. And like, I mean, we, we within a few weeks, it was like, you've been in my life forever. <laughs> it, was, yeah. it was crazy. It was really kind of crazy. And our families spend, started spending time together. And then we, we finished up, we graduated, Shiloh stayed with the company for a while. I went on to, um, like I said, I, my, my goal was getting some benefits. So I went into the California Department of Corrections for several years working as a um, correctional psychologist, which was just an incredible experience. Like it was just like worlds away from being a casting director <laughs> in a producer's right. office. You know, I'm it was a really gritty kind of uh, introduction to that world. And I did that for a few years, commuting to, to and from Central California to Southern California. And then I got an opportunity to work at L.A. County Jail uh, in the inmate reception center. And that was a really cool um, and interestingly enough, like you're going to a lower level of incarceration that was way more dangerous, like way, way, way more dangerous than working in prison. And um, learned a great deal in the years I was there. Um, briefly went to work at the sheriff's department as a law enforcement psych, and then ended up moving back into a position working as a partner with law enforcement, following up in the community with people that had either been hospitalized on 5150 holds or had engaged in things that were borderline crime, but related to mental illness with our goal of de-escalating um, high acuity situations in the community. So I was always with a detective um, and, and I consult with, uh, with a threat management unit that's part of this police force as well. So I like, 
I just, every day I wake up and I go, how did I end up here? And how lucky am I to work with like some of the smartest people in that I've ever met? And also Shiloh, this is, this podcast is all her fault. <laughs> we were, we were <laughs> walking down the street after lunch one day or like getting, getting coffee. And she's like, I've got an idea. Let's have a, let's do a podcast. I was absolutely against it. Nope. We're not going to do it. We've got too much on our plate. We're, we're, we do things too much. We'll kill ourselves, blah, blah, blah. And within, I think, maybe walking 30 more feet, we already had the name for the podcast and an outline for the first episode. I'm pretty good at convincing Scott by now after knowing him all this time. Yup. Yup. It worked. So that's us. Well, thank you guys both for being here. And and I'm going to tap way into your forensic psychology skill set because, you know, we're in an interesting spot in this investigation that we're just beginning. Uh, I mentioned you guys off the air that, you know, at this phase in the investigation, I'm nowhere near even looking at suspects. We're still breaking down, you know, where we're at now is still looking at victimology and timeline, you know, and we haven't even done a a thorough crime scene analysis yet. The problem that we run into is that they're in one of the three victims timelines uh, comes this guy, Robert Pape, where, you know, she's, you know, she's supposed to be at work. On this Sunday night, she's working, going to work the, the graveyard shift that night. Uh, she calls her boss and says she forgets her shirt and she's got to go back home. We don't know. I know you guys don't know. I've, I've, I didn't let them. I'm, I'm killing them both because I haven't let them Google anything, they don't yep. know anything about this case. Haven't been things. able to start the new season. Yeah. Just in the dark. <laughs> Thanks. It's so frustrating. Uh, <laughs> so frustrating. <laughs> Uh, but I wanted a, I wanted a fresh take on it because uh, I, I I always worry that you know, I try very hard to be objective, but I know a lot about the case already. Sure. Um, but you know we don't know for sure if that call actually happened or if, or if it was, or we know the call happened. We don't know if she actually was halfway down the hill and went back or if she was just buying herself some time. But then through interviews with friends, we find this guy Robert Pape, who's her ex boyfriend. Who, who her other friend says, well, she said that she was going to go hiking with Robert. And so then he mm-hmm. calls Robert to make sure that Robert is not also a victim in this, in this fire. And he's like, no, I ended up not going. Um, which then leads us to this police interview. So the, so the purpose of this really, we're trying to, I wanted a, a professional, some, some forensic psychologist to look at this and tell me, what do you think? Cause you've not all, you've had the benefit of not only hearing the audio, but seeing the video of this interview. If if Robert appears to be telling the truth to you, do you see any red flags in there? Do you see anything that seems like indicators of veracity? Not because at this point, if we're trying to decide if Robert's a suspect or not, but because we're trying to determine, did Becky go hiking that night hmm. that, she, that, that she was killed? Um, so uh, I, from there, I, I'll, let, I'll let you guys just kind of, I, I don't know how we want to break it down. If you want to just kind of go chronologically and bounce off each other. Have you guys seen, I know Shiloh, you sent me kind of an analysis. I purposely didn't look at it because okay, uh, I, okay. I, I like to be unprepared uh, as yeah. much as possible when I come on a podcast. Um, but I, I just want to, I want to hear it fresh. Um, so have you guys shared notes with each other? Do you guys kind of know where you're at? No, I not ju- at all. Well, I, what I just did was I just opened the notes, the outline that Shiloh sent me, what, uh, three days ago. And I, I, what's interesting is because I, I had some, only a couple of really strong thoughts. And I mean, it was really only a couple in watching this and a lot of confusion. And it looks like Shiloh and I, maybe we spent too much time together, but that's, (laughs) it seems like we're on the same page about a lot of this stuff so far. Yeah, Yeah, I think, 
first off, I just kind of like want to talk about the tone of the interview and maybe how the investigators going about it as, um, I I didn't mention the beginning. I'm also former law enforcement. Um, I spent seven years as a police officer before I went into psychology. Um, I think it's a, it, it's, it's a well-structured interview in the sense that if there is something hinky with Robert, this investigator does not let up on him, does not. Um, I think he's always sort of anticipating that maybe this interview is going to turn to where he's going to have like a gotcha moment with Robert, yeah. which is not necessarily a bad thing. Like he's, he's, he has a temperature up a little bit, I guess is the way, right? Especially after seeing the video, he's sitting very close to him within, mm-hmm. you know, touching distance, um, making it a little, little uncomfortable in that, that small, interrogation room um i think i would have in a perfect world of course 2020 hindsight would have liked to see a little bit more of like genuine rapport building and really getting robert to buy in to the fact that you know he's being very helpful to the police and um bridging that gap of just this being super adversarial from the beginning. Not that it's crazy adversarial. That's not what I'm no, saying. But it is very detached rather than trying to create a rapport. That was what mm-hmm. that was one of the, the the impressions I got from the beginning. And it, he like he still he does he has a path he's on that you like, mm-hmm. oh, I see what he's doing. Oh, I see what he's doing. But there were sure. several times where I was thinking, you know, you probably could get even more out of this person who won't stop talking um if you right. w- yeah. were a little bit warmer. So what's interesting is so in in the follow up that I I just kind of give gave a quick analysis of my own which it hasn't aired yet it airs tomorrow uh, for the listeners it'll be last week it aired um, but it, it's interesting that's the first thing you guys picked up on because I I mentioned in that that it almost seemed to me that this interview was like the read technique and fast forward where it yeah. was like it was yeah. like we skipped rapport building we just moved right into. And then, you know, there's parts where he's like, yeah, you know how women are, you know, there's some, there's some of that. It's like, you know, like he's already w- yeah. went to the point where you want to back somebody into a corner and then give him a way out. But he's like, he just, to me, it just seemed like he was going way too fast with that stuff. I, I thought to, that was for me, really I to slow odd. Down. Yeah. I thought yeah. that was really odd. Just well, out and of it was nowhere. Just disingenuous. You know, there can be a yeah. time and a place where you have rapport built. And you have the person in a place where they trust you. And if they're going to start to crack with a little bit of truthfulness and emotions that you do, this is what we teach in crisis negotiation school. When you are looking at getting building rapport with somebody who's in a crisis situation, there might be times that they have crazy ideologies or views. But the way that I tell people, investigators or officers to envision it is that you guys are both sitting up on a porch, looking out over the world, kind of complaining about it together. And there's a time and a place to align with maybe what their views are, even if you don't believe it yourself. It can be, it, it can work magic sometimes to get them to crack open. It just wasn't done in a very sophisticated way in this case, in my opinion. Yeah, I kind of, I kind of felt the same way. And, and, you know, in the officer's defense, I don't think he really knew if he was interviewing a suspect of or course witness or but it was just yeah there were some odd things that, personally just from my own interrogation te- uh, technique which i didn't do it as an arson investigator i did it some um i'm i, I was a i hate i hate it's my pet peeve i hate it when an investigator interrupts someone ever Ugh. 
I yeah. hate it. I, yep. I'm, I'm always, I was always a guy that not only would I give them the space to talk, but when they were done talking, I'd still sit there and count to 15 in my head before I said anything because I wanted to see if the discomfort would cause them to continue talking. Yes. Uh, and in this one, you get a lot of like, even in the transcripts, you see like Robert's mid sentence and then there's something from the investigator back to Robert, back to the investigator, back to Robert. Um, so that was a little yeah. frustrating, but, um, but let, let, let's kind of sh- sh- look at it while we're talking about kind of the, the tone of things. What did you guys think about Robert's, um, his continence, the way his tone, the way he, the way he, he held himself, uh, throughout the interview and projected himself or presented himself? What did you think about that? What's the, what's the, I'm trying to think of the clinical term that we use. Um, when I'm doing, when I'm doing an evaluation, um, it's ugh, Shiloh, I'm completely blanking. What's the word? Not insignificant, not non-significant, you know, like there's just nothing that's particularly notable about it for me. Right. You know, listening to him, you know, I mean, it, I am not, I'm an evaluator. I'm not an interviewer of, of suspects. I've never been uh-huh. in that position to ask those kind of questions. But what I have come to understand from my exposure is that you sometimes want, like you were saying, you want to have those long pauses in order for people to fill in the space because the more they fill in the space, they're going to reveal something that trips themselves up. And I don't really see that here. The guy is almost like that description of um, what some cops will say is like an innocent person almost tells you too much. Like they just keep talking and keep talking. Right. And because they don't know if it's necessarily integral to what the, the interrogator is asking about, it can take you in the wrong direction. And unless the kid is like a master psychopath, you know, that like, and that's always a possibility. It's not necessarily a likelihood. But I didn't think I didn't see anything that was here that was particularly notable in the way yeah, I, he was presenting himself. And I, I should mention, too, I don't remember if I told you guys in the information I gave you ahead of time in the briefing. But um, at this point, so this is the day the, the fire occurred the night before. It was a homicide, triple homicide. Um, but at this point, all anyone knows or is supposed to know is that there was a fire. That's all that the mm-hmm. police have told anyone is that there was a fire. And they know, they, they think there's three people dead from okay. kind of the rumors going around. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Not that I'm a body language expert and 
to be honest, some of that isn't evidence-based enough for me. <laughs> um, but I, I think he consistently has quite an open posture. I think there's only one area in which he sort of uh, veers off from that. He makes eye contact consistently with the detective, which is really hard to do when you yeah. have a detective sitting like right, right. there. Anybody, that's, that's uncomfortable. Um, yet it didn't come off as forced. He does offer to be helpful, but I didn't feel like it was over the top too helpful. You know, he's off, he's pulling his cell phone out to get numbers, to get other people that the detective can contact. I think the other things that seem quote unquote honest, he has a decent timeline. I mean, there's, there's sort of multiple people that are there as alibis. And this is all self-report, of course. Some spots are vague, but, um, you know, unless, and I have no clue, so I don't know if there's any spoilers and maybe you don't either, but unless Christian committed the crime with him, it seems pretty tight to me as far as storyline and things like that. The way his alibi is presented, it would seem like if the case, if, if you were the state, and wanted to make a case against him mm-hmm. with his, with that interview, it would almost have to be with – you'd sure. almost have to bring Christian with him. Right. Because as that, he says he's with Christian all night. Yeah, you know? absolutely. So, yeah. So that's and, his- and just to be clear, like we are literally just going off this interview because that's all, <laughs> that's all that I have. have, the only right. reference yeah. point. Yeah. Um, no, I, I did I did notice one point in, in the interview where he does change his body language, mm-hmm. but um, – it seemed to me, and again, I'm the same way. Like you know, a lot of the training I have, this stuff comes from Jim Clemente, just kind of mentoring me over the years. And and it, it, a big thing he's always pointing out to me is people who say, "Well, that means they're lying." It doesn't mean they're lying. There are certain indicators that maybe indicate that someone's uncomfortable, and then yes. it's your job to figure out why they're uncomfortable. And maybe yes. they're uncomfortable because they're lying. I did notice when they asked, um, it was the only time, but when they asked him. Uh, when I think it was when he had last been up to the hill. Bingo. Yeah. Uh, he, he changes his posture. He looks down. It was, the, and it was like, if you fast forward through the interview, you could see he's like sitting tight, sitting tight, sitting tight, and boom, head goes down. Absolutely. Head goes then, down, arms fold. Right. Yeah. He, he folds his arms. He looks down at the floor and for really one of the first times, like stumbles over his words a bit. Um, it was something of note. Right. Again, I, I think it, it, we need to look at what was being asked in this moment. When was the last time he was up at Becky's house? Um, and like you were referencing earlier, this could be uncomfortability, but what does that mean? Was he up right. there when he wasn't supposed to be up there? Was he up there doing something else on the property that he wasn't supposed to be right. doing? Um, or does he know, oh shit, now they're going to think that I'm a suspect if that wasn't even in his head before. Right. I mean, I looked at that and I I stopped it and I played a couple of times and I thought it was one of those things that I I put in my notes is like, you know, everything is vague, nothing kind of leading me in any direction. This was one of the things that got my attention, but I thought, you know, it doesn't, that question is out of alignment. It's not quite as linear as Mm -hmm. the lead up in the questions. And I do know behaviorally that if uh, that people, if you kind of come from a from a ninety degree angle with a new question, that a 
that it's not necessarily defensive. It is an indicator of a neurological shift of, oh, wait, let me, let me take exactly. a minute. I have to think about this. What, when was the last time I was up there? That's so a, I'm, not, exactly I'm not saying it's a, what I thought. Yeah. I don't see it as an indicator of guilt necessarily. I see it as like, it was a question out of left field that took him into using a different part of his brain. He's not being asked those particular kinds of questions. That was pretty, as a matter of fact, that's what I had I'd said on our follow-up was to me, after, when I went back through and kept rewatching it and listening to the questions, it seemed like that was the first question that he didn't know the answer to. Yeah. Right? So, so everything was exactly everything was like, what'd you do last night? And where, where, where'd you guys go? And how did this happen? And why'd you break up? And da, 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 da. And then think back, when was the last time you were up there? And I, and it was, it could be that, the, you know, that for me, it seemed like it could be that that was the first time he had to like really stop and think when uh-huh. was the last time I was there, you know, and all the different things that are firing in your brain, like that you're trying to attach memories to like, was it Christmas? Well, time and or? think about how meta that gets like, oh shit, now I've paused too long. Now does he think I'm guilty? Now is that suspect? And you're having right. that other parallel conversation in your head while you are trying to answer the question. That's what that's exactly what Janet said. She said like, she was Of course uh, she did. Yeah. <laughs> She's like <laughs> yeah, you should know that that uh, Dr. Shiloh and, and Janet are good friends also. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah, she she's like I could totally see myself in that position like oh my god, what are they th-? you know and just spiraling. But he, yeah. but he you know he reco- he just he didn't really spiral, you know, he just kind of changed it and he, he thought through it. I did notice in and, and, and you guys are at a bit of a disadvantage because I did, I gave you the audio and the video. I didn't give you the transcript, um, which I have. And I was I was rereading the transcript today, going through it. And you start and you do notice a little more when you read it, as far as like you mentioned, Doctor Scott, that he never like stumbled through his words. Um, but it was it's, it's funny. It's super consistent in here when you're reading when when they actually type in uh oh uh, uh um uh mm. I well I uh. And when you're listening, you don't really catch it because yeah. it just kind of happens. But it seems every time they talk about his relationship, like why the relationship broke up, who was the, you know, was there another guy or why are you talking? Does your girlfriend like you talking to her? It was always during those times where he kind of would get mumble mouth, you know, where Interesting. he would, he would struggle so, a little bit through it. If almost like we took the transcript and ran it through a computer to a thematic analyze this yeah. for me, it, yeah. Or, an, yeah, analyze it, it would probably pick up on the type of question asked and when does he stumble over his words. Yeah. Um, so that's interesting. Yeah. So it, but it, it almost seemed to me the way, and if we have time later, I'll, I've got some, some examples marked I can, I can show you, but it was like, it was almost like he was a little embarrassed about parts i I didn't i didn't take it Uh as like indicators of like deception but it was like he was uncomfortable talking about you for for a great example is why they broke up now i don't know the truth about why they broke up what i know is her friends told the police that or one her like best friend told the police that becky was a big pot smoker smoked a lot smoked every day and robert doesn't and robert didn't like it and that Robert broke up with her because he didn't like that she was smoking pot. I think that's very interesting. Right. So then when the officer asked, why'd you break up? He says that it's because of, you know, there was some other guy. But then huh. it's almost nonsense 
you know what he's very he's, yeah. he's not specific i didn't i don't know it was uh and he's dead, dead, dead stumbling over it and it almost made me wonder if he's not it's because he's talking to a cop and he's doesn't want to tell the cop that she smokes pot right i get the idea that he he does not want to badmouth her and this is another bullet point that i had under indicators that it seems like he's being honest because Twice, the detective asks, asks him about if she struggled with depression, sort of almost indicating like, hey, could this have been suicidal ideation or could this be a suicide? And he doesn't bite on either of those. Yeah. Right. Like, how easy would it have been to sort of like victim blame or tear her down or make her the bad guy by biting onto what that detective's giving him? And he doesn't do it. Yeah, I know that he never he never takes that out to. Uh, even so there's i definitely in my first listen thought you know when he when he says well i was talking to her and she says there's you know well there's another guy going to be there some marine from right 29 palms or whatever and and my my first thought was like oh he's trying to put somebody else there in his place totally you know which which you know certainly could be it could be the case well, it's it's vague. It sounds like the part he's trying to make up as to why they broke up, it just feels vague. It feels pretty empty. Right. So, you know, coming back to um, he didn't really want to pinpoint that she was this huge pot smoker, um, that that totally fits with what I thought as well. Right. That that is that mean it's fishy that he's kind of vague in that area, or does he just not want to paint her in a bad light? Well, I, I just remember what, where I was going with that was with him, when he was pointing out um, people that were, you know, there, there's this other guy. She's always, there's always another guy. She's always trying to make me jealous. Right. Could be a Marine from 29 Palms. Could be this. But then he goes into, well, and, but, but then Javier said that it could be um, her stepbrother was supposed to be mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. And he's supposed to, and, and then he turns into, and he, he, um, he, he kind of keeps rambling. He goes, and so that's, you know, I was concerned and why I wanted to talk to you guys. And, and the first time I heard it, I thought, Oh, you're concerned that you're that they're going to think it's you. But when I, especially when I read it in the transcript, what he's saying is he's concerned that if Robbie, her stepbrother, was there, that he might be dead too because he heard that they only found three bodies, ah, uh, and Robbie okay. would be there too. Or could one of them not be Becky? Is what it, it seemed like to me. But but the the bigger point was he never he does what he doesn't do is say. No, she said she was with a she was with a marine that she met on a base, and he's there. Mm. In fact, he says he says that um, you know whether he doesn't remember. He, he says he said at one point, I don't remember if she said it was a marine or if I just assumed that. Mm-hmm. And that got me wondering, thinking too, when I'm when I'm when you know the, the the way he's, it's the way you would qualify something to me in my amateur. But it's the way you would qualify something. If you're concerned that the other person's going to correct you on the other end, like, no, uh, I didn't say yeah. that. Yeah. Which, which t- to me, like in a deeper analysis after my first pass through was like, it's almost as though in his mind, she's still alive. Like she's, she could still be on the other end of this and correct. So I'm going to be very careful to say, well, she didn't say it was a Marine or I don't remember if she did. I might've just have assumed that, but she said there was another guy of some kind. What do you guys think? Yeah, I, I think I think I, I I sort of categorized the comment about the Marine, the comment about Robbie really as being like, eh, is he trying to place another person at the scene? 
Right. Um, so I, I'm sure reading the transcript does give you like another Passover of how that could look with the, the rest of the context. Um, I also wanted to comment that, you know, when he doesn't bite on sort of the leading question about depression, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> on, on sort of a optimistic view, it could be like, okay, he doesn't want to bad mouth or he doesn't want to, um, go down that road the detective is. But is it also an indicator that he knows that this wasn't suicide because he has more information? I don't know. Right. Kind of, so it's, it's kind of a double-edged sword. Like, does he already, sub, not subconsciously, but know because he was involved? I, I did not zero in so much on that part of the conversation. What I got sucked into were the questions about the other potential men there and the statements that she was making about other men. and. Gosh, this is so weird because in any other kind of interview where there are more indicators where you're going, yeah, this guy's guilty, you know, when you're thinking this, they're, they're guilty, of course, then that's going to be bolstered by, yeah, she was looking at other guys and I'm jealous and blah, blah, blah. This is what it led to. She's comparing my body to theirs and how much, you know, more attractive they are. And this wasn't that. I actually kind of got like a sadness from him. Mm-hmm. Like, like, yeah. And look, this is, you know, Bob, this is pure conjecture because we know so little about this, right? Sure. But like yeah. just on the surface to me, it was almost like we don't know why this ended. I don't necessarily think he wanted it to end and it really makes him sad, you know? Yeah. I mean, like, but he's trying to kind of be laissez-faire about it in a way, not be too overly um, involved. And and I, God, I wish I had like higher... I wish I had high acuity video looking at his face, seeing the pupils of his eyes when the interrogator says, or when the interviewer starts making the, you know, sort of misogynistic comments about women. Right. Like I would love to get a, like slow it down with a high speed camera and get the micro expressions to see if he was reacting at all. Cause you know, he very much, you know, we're saying best case scenario, he has nothing to do with this. And he really loved her or cared about her or wanted that relationship to work. I think then, then that would be a real tell mm-hmm. in the, his micro expressions. I don't, are you familiar with micro expressions? No, I mean, I'm familiar with what they are. I couldn't analyze them, but I, I'm right, aware but you know, they're like, they're, they're yeah. things that are very, very subtle and they are, they mm-hmm. are, they are definitely giveaways. There's a very famous, um, husband and wife analyst team, marital, fer- marital therapy team, the Gottmans, Dr. John Gottman. And he has an entire institute in the Northwest where they have hours and hours and hours of couples therapy footage. And they have cam- close-up cameras on just the facial structure. And grad students slow the camera, the, the recordings down and get like down to eat which specific muscle is moving during a particularly. And they can predict like the, the, the thing is that they can are very successful in predicting within just a couple of minutes, whether a couple is going to stay together based on their type of communication and the micro expressions that are going on. So I'm sorry, that was a long winded way of saying of like, I wish we could see what was going on in his face because either he's a brilliant, brilliant liar, which is not really is not really likely because there just aren't that many of them in the world given he's the 18 on top of it. Yeah. yeah and the young. severity of what happened, the severity of it was brutal from what you're describing. Right. I mean, it's awful. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, and so that's something I want, 
one way, and, and again, like my my overall purpose at this point is to try to figure out, you know, was did he go there that day? You know, mm-hmm. or so and so like him telling the truth could indicate to us, okay, well, maybe there is somebody else that was there that adds another risk factor, or she didn't go on the hike, or she did go on the hike, whatever it is. And he gives us and it's something it, it's something where it, it again, it's one of those things that first listen. It jumped out of me. It's like, oh, he's let some guilty knowledge out because all anyone knows. So the so this is like a, the the craziest game of telephone ever, right? So again, Pinion Pines is up in the middle of nowhere. There's a huge fire. Police rope everything off. They don't let anybody in. People are kind of gathered. They keep. They won't even let people gather in front of the house. They're kind of down the road a little bit. Mm-hmm. And one of the neighbor's daughter was a friend of Becky's and lives down in the valley, calls her and says, hey, there was a fire at, at the house, and and I, we think that Becky might have been in it. She calls another friend. That friend calls Javier. Javier drives up to the scene. He talks Javier calls Robert. And so, but all that's been said of by the police officially is that there's been a fire. And then Robert in the interview mentions the body in a wheelbarrow. And that, and, and and I'm sure you might have caught that the that the the officer jumped on that too right away. It was like, well, uh-huh. where'd that come from? How do you know that? And then later on in the part that's we'll talk about in a minute because it was off. You you can't you can only read it's they were still talking when they got off camera and it was real muffled, but it was it is got transcribed, it. so we can talk about that a little bit later. But so that whole thing when he's describing what happened at the crime scene. Did you guys pick up anything about that? Or I don't know if you did you spend any time really focusing in on what he was saying and talking about there? Well, I, in a, just the very brief prompts and sort of clarifications that you gave us when initially we only had the audio is that you said Javier was up at the scene. And I would like to know more about how close Javier was to the scene. And, and of course, I know you've having eyes on it is is much different than sort of hypothesizing like what you could see, what maybe people even at the perimeter could hear on a police radio. Mm-hmm. Maybe somebody has a scanner, body in a wheelbarrow, goes out over the radio. Who knows how that information could have gotten out? Um, so just the fact that I don't know all of that, it wasn't a giant red flag to me. Um I think there were other details that sounded like were provided from Javier that sounds like Javier was probably much closer or had more insight to what was going on um, in order to pass those on to Robbie. So I think that my next step, if I was this detective, would be to talk to Javier and confirm that. And then that would clear things up. Exactly. It is the next step. And, I, and, I'll, and we'll, I'll feed you guys a little more information here because I did do some breakdown on this, which you guys didn't know this stuff going into reading it but when they go ask Javier Javier says no I didn't tell him that I didn't find out about the wheelbarrow for mm. 4 days Interesting. I didn't find out about it till 4 days later so now you got Robert saying yeah I got this information from Javier and Javier saying I didn't tell him that and now it looks real bad but I came to the conclusion well let me tell I'm not going to tell you the conclusion I came to I'll I'll tell you I'll kind of re go through what he says the officer asked Robert what do you know about what happened up there? And he said, well, I don't know much. There was a fire. Javier told me that, that apparently they found three bodies, that uh, two of them were um, 
they couldn't tell what sex they were and were you know burnt up beyond recognition so much that they couldn't tell what sex they even were and then there was a body in a wheelbarrow that they think was a 20ish year old female so he she gives them those details very specific and such an interesting choice of words a 20ish year old female well it sounds like information that's very um kind of cold and clinical like a detective, like a detective or a cop would, would use yeah. Right. And, and, and so I, I'll, so my, since I'm springing it on you guys now, what I, my thought of it about it was, cause my first thought was, I mean, I literally, I had a, I had, um, a moment when I was like listening to it. I'm like, oh shit, like he shouldn't know that. And Javier says he didn't tell him. So now it's a, he said, she said, yeah, you, know, you sure. can't prove anything for that. But then I broke down what he said. So he said they found two bodies that were burnt up so badly that you couldn't tell what sex they were. And then the body in the wheelbarrow, the body in the wheelbarrow is what got everybody's attention. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I moved back and focused in on the two bodies. The information he provided is what the police officers found in the aftermath. It's not information. So like the killer wouldn't, if the, if the information came from, cause let's say Robert was the one that was there and killed them. If that was the case, he wouldn't know if they found the bodies, where they found the bodies, what that they were able, the not able to tell in, what sex they were. Yeah, they were not. He wouldn't know any of that stuff. Yeah. So the so and the and he didn't say Becky was in a wheelbarrow. He says there's a. So now you know at first it's like oh he's just trying to like you know dumb that down a little bit. But when you yeah. couple it with, it, so it's not only is he not sharing something that the killer should know. But to me, it's almost driving home the fact that that did come from after the fact because it's 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 information. Only anyone could know, and the police didn't find the bodies until the middle, like three in the morning, and they didn't remove them until daylight the next day, like the next morning. You know, mm-hmm. were they actually like excavate? I'm sure in your work you've come across you know fires like that where they had to. It's a you find a body, and of course I have. You find a body in a fire, and it's like everything yeah. stops, and it's yep. sifting, and and you know taking little bits and pieces away from the as you're bringing them out. Can you remind us timeline wise when this interview with Robert is taking place in regard to the crime that actually happened the fire? So the fire is seen at 10 p.m. Sunday night. That's when people see the fire. Fires it's a beginning. It is its beginning stages. By the time the fire department gets there, the house ends up burning all the way down, and you know they find the bodies at three in the morning on would be Monday, and then this interview with Robert is Monday at like 5 p.m. So okay. it's the, it's the, it's the, basically the morning everybody woke up and they found out something happened. It's that day at five o'clock. Got it. Got it. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> All right. Where do you want to go from there? <laughs> uh, Sorry. I, the great. Thanks for the timeline. Well, um, I, I, no I more answers for you. <laughs> I'll tell you what I immediately started thinking there. That's why I blanked out for a second is I now want to know. And I, I I'm, have not been law enforcement. I mean, I, I don't have a law enforcement background. But now I want to know, if I was a supervisor of that investigation team, I would want to know who the hell said what, when, to who. Because right. that language, I mean, that is definitely releasing information. That's like, that's like um, you know, snapping a, a crime scene photo on your phone and sharing it. Right. You know? Yeah, like so, it seems who, pretty obvious to me. And that how was a would leak. it get to him? How would it get to Pape? Right, right. Well, and so there's a little more as I'm just spoon feeding you guys a little more information. 
as it turns out, Javier's dad is the DA's investigator for the homicide unit. Oh, 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 all right. Now, they say that he didn't tell him anything he doesn't (laughs) know. I don't know that he did, but. Excuse me. Um, I don't know that. You you could also do this. Like there is, Shiloh, do you remember what that program is called? There's a, there are technical software programs that you put, um, you put verbiage blocks into and it will analyze it thematically. It's like used in, like if we're doing um, qualitative uh, evaluation of research and stuff, you need for, or you look for themes, you look for words that re, that um, repeat over, and you also get an idea of what if it's one person's you know six page narrative or, or story. You get an idea of what their education level is based on the vocabulary that's being used and the grammatical structure. So that's something that now is jumping out is here's this guy who he's his grammar is is pretty good. His vocabulary is moderate. It's not great. But then for him to use that specific language, the sex is not revealed as opposed to the, the bodies were burned so badly they couldn't tell if it was a man or a woman. Right. Like that, like that's a very clinical description. Just, just so we're clear, I'm going to read the exact words okay. from the transcript. He says, I, uh, Javier called and said, Hey, did you hear what happened? I said, no. He said, there's a fire at Becky's house and they found three people. Um, and then he, he called me twice, you know, and just gave me a little bit of information. Then he called me back and he was calling me back as he found out more. But from as far as I know, there's three people. Two of them were um, like the sex was unrecognizable. One who was found in a wheelbarrow um, was um, a female about 20 years old. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's from Javier's dad. Clearly. <laughs> I mean, he I was thinking, OK, I'm trying to think outside the box here. Um, he's sitting in a police station waiting to be interviewed. Maybe he overhears something. Maybe on his way to the interview room, he hears something from detectives talking, you know. But he's clearly linking this to Javier, calling him, calling him back and providing him with more information like, oh, yeah, I heard my overheard my dad saying this or dad told me this because he knows I know this person. It's it's very clear. Yeah, that's that's what the denial is possible. There's a leak that came from somewhere else, but. One way or another, my thing is, and, and I, I, I won't speak for you guys, but for me, I didn't see what, especially when I really looked deep into this interview, I didn't see anything that gave me any reason to believe that what Robert was saying wasn't true. You know, right. so and some of it's verifiable. So, so like he says, my mom wanted me to go to mass. And, and so I called Sacred Heart, but the mass was at 5.30. It was too late. And, and so that's just like one little piece in his little story. We check his phone records. He called 411. And I think we're all old enough to know what that means. <laughs> for the whippersnappers listening, they don't. Um, but he, he called for, on his phone records. He called 411. And then he called Sacred Heart, Sacred Heart Catholic Church. Hmm. What year is this again? 2006. Yeah, so 2006, because I remember him, he's using a flip phone, isn't he? Right. right. So yep. he opens up his flip phone, and then even Shiloh noted this, that he makes this, what, what's the word he uses? Um, it's hard to get a hold of mom. Yeah. Which yeah. today, people would say, well, that's, that's a red flag right there. But if it's this long ago, you know, you're thinking he has a, a phone for his age as a young man, 
his parents at that time might not have had a cell phone. You know? I can't get my mom to answer her phone yeah. ever. I, now. I was going to say, if if, 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 I, if I could add a little something to it, I know his mom. And uh-huh. she's hard to get a hold of. <laughs> there you go. All, right. All these I, years I, later, still I mean, stands. She's, Kathleen, I love you. Uh, she's listening to this right now, I'm sure. And there have <laughs> definitely been times where I've sent her a text and asked her a question, and she texts me back six days later and saying, oh, sorry, I forgot. To. There you go. So it didn't surprise me at all when he said mom's right. hard to get a hold of. But I could, yeah. I would think that that would be, you know, in today's world, it, it that would be that would be notable for uh, a evaluator. Like, what do you mean you're, you can't get in touch with your mom? Because people are right. attached to their phones constantly now, but at least sure. by Great text, point. if not vocal. Great yeah, point. But, but then he too, he, you know, he gives them the phone number. You know, it's, it's not like he says, right. ah, you don't want to call her. He just kind of warns right. him, you know. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Another another language choice that I thought was I, I and I didn't catch till literally the, the the last time I went through the transcript today. After the conversation with the wheelbarrow and everything, he said, "Where'd that information come from?" Well, Javier told me, and what I was saying before is it the way his, his his everything about his body language, his voice, the way he's talking, everything sounds the same to me when he says Javier told me as when he said I called Sacred Heart Church, right? Mm-hmm. You know that that's where I got that information. But the, but then you know of course then the detective Michaels is like whoa, whoa wait a minute where'd you hear that from you know and right. then they clear that up a little bit and then I caught this he says the detective says did you guys talk talk any at all about what might have happened so remember this is a and I told you guys you know the, the details where this was a triple homicide it was confirmed the two victims inside were both shot and then the house was lit on fire with accelerants Becky's found with her body burning in a wheelbarrow. With with accelerants as well, obviously a homicide. And, but but Robert's response is, well, I asked him if he, do you have any idea like what started it? Uh. And I, I breezed past it the first time, but it, it, and it, it like like Doctor Scott said, maybe he's a master manipulator liar. That's possible. It's in the realm of possibilities. Absolutely. One in a million shot, but. Looking at it at face value, he, you know, his his response to that, and I went back and listened or watched the video. It's not a, it's not like a long pause. It's a quick response. Yeah. His quick response, immediate response to that is, I wanted to know what started it. Mm-hmm. And what I'm getting at is he thinks that in his mind, what they're dealing with is a fire, not a yeah. murder. Right. right. Yeah. It, it, it is a very honest question thinking this like, was an accident. Yeah. Yeah. And then and then one thing that and this will be new to my listeners, too, because in the audio version, I cut this off because it was too hard to hear in the video version. You can barely because they were recording on two separate devices. I'm sure you noticed that um, he, had, he had like a body mic on. So you heard a little more in the in the in the audio version. 
But in the end, after they walk out, the cop goes, you, you see, like you said, Dr. Scott, you hear like a lot of talking going on after they walk out of the room. And I'm not going to read all this, but the video, you know, the cops just going on, basically telling them, listen, there's a lot of rumors get started. Be best if you kids don't talk about it. I know you like to talk about things. Things get, and then in this part, he says, people start speculating. And when people speculate, what ends up happening is the speculation becomes rumor or fact. You know, your whole wheelbarrow thinking about it, stuff like that. So he brings the wheelbarrow back up and says, you know, that's so. And, or, and that's, pod, or, or it becomes a podcast. Right, right. Yeah. And I'm going to show you. You see how long that paragraph is? It's a yeah. big, long paragraph. The part mm-hmm. highlight is the part I just read to you. Oh, so, wow. So, that's a lot. Yeah. So it's in the middle. And the point being, it's in the middle of this diatribe about don't talk about it. He he pops in in the middle of it like the wheelbarrow thing. Then he continues talking for a while. When he finishes talking, Robert says, and it, it transcribes some of it's unintelligible, but but in the transcript it says, and that's unintelligible was unintelligible in the wheelbarrow. And what it sounds to me is he's asking, like, so was that part about the wheelbarrow not true? Oh, okay. And and okay. and you get that in context too, because Michael's response is, "You know what? I haven't been to the scene. That's the first I've heard of you, heard of it. You saying it. I mean, that would seem kind of bizarre to me." So the huh. part the part that people haven't heard by listening or watching was that after he says there was a body in the wheelbarrow. Then the cop is saying, you know, hey, don't spread rumors. Let's not do this, by the way. You know, you know, little things like that wheelbarrow thing you said turns into crazy stories, blah, 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 blah. And all Robert is waiting till the end of it until he gets his chance to talk and says, wait, so is the wheelbarrow thing not true? Okay. Um, so it, you don't hmm. think he's asking, was that Becky in the wheelbarrow? Is it, I, I don't just, think so because, it, okay. because the response, he didn't say. I wasn't at the scene, so I don't know who was in the wheelbarrow. Right. He said, I wasn't at the scene, but that would seem kind of bizarre to me to have a body. Like, to me, I read it as it would seem yeah. kind of bizarre to me to have a body in a wheelbarrow. Yeah, like, and if he thinks that this fire started from the house, like, how does it then jump to a wheelbarrow if he thinks it's an accident or... I don't know. I The one thing that sticks out to me throughout this is that... He does not really seem concerned about the situation so much. If this was an innocent friend who has probably perished because at least he has this information that a 20-year-old girl's body has been found. Mm -hmm. He never asks like about the well-being. I mean, how could it just like be festering in you and killing you to want to say like, so was it Becky? Right. You know, what's funny you said that is this is the fourth interview that I've played mm-hmm. of Becky's friends and several of our – in our follow-up, the questions from listeners were, why does no one seem upset? And I don't know the answer to it because because Javier, who's like her bestest bestie, does – he's just like, yeah, so anyway, blah, 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 blah. And at the end, it, it, you know, similar to – and maybe you, you know, you guys could probably speak more to that psychology end of it because then her other two female friends that live down in the valley, both of them are just, and one of them is kind of shitty, actually. You know, she's one of her <laughs> friends, and she's like, nice. I don't know, she's, you know, she bends the truth a lot, she fibs a little bit here and there, and 
and you know, and and kind of goes on. But but nobody like seems upset by this. They're all teenagers. They're all eighteen. They just graduated high school. This is September. They graduated in in the spring or the this early summer. Does that? I guess it'd be a good question for you. Why are none of these kids upset? Well, they're, I think in a, what we would call quote unquote inappropriate show of emotion is, is certainly always a good talking point. Um, when you have young kids like this faced with probably the first trauma that they've ever had to encounter, and it is very, very close to home, there is this trauma arc usually that people experience. And the first phase is denial. And that happens in all sorts of different ways for people. Um, it could literally be just making up other alternative stories about what happened um, or not wanting to face it or it's not bleeding through emotionally at all because you can't allow yourself to go there yet until you have a definitive answer. That's why, and you're probably trained in this too, Bob, like when you are doing a death notification, you have to say the words that your loved one is dead or your loved one died because if you right. say they passed on or something flowery, it does not sink in with folks. Yeah. And it, it, what's interesting, too, is in all four interviews, there's some little indication where they're still hoping that Becky's still alive. So and with, with Janelle and Claire are the two other friends. When they b- Both of them, and the listeners didn't hear it, but they can see it in the report. Um, Because uh, uh, I, I just didn't play the very beginning of the interview because it's mixed in with everybody's addresses and birthdays. Um, but they're like, well, are you sure? Are we sure that Becky's dead? And the cops are saying, no, we're not sure. Like they keep saying that, you know, that's how, that's how close to the vest they're keeping this. They're directly asking them, you know, do we know for sure that Becky died? And they're like, yeah, I don't know yet. I haven't been up there. I really don't know. They both directly asked that Javier's interview at the end of the end of the interview, he's talking about which car she drives. And he's like, can you at least tell me like. Was the green scion there? Can you tell me yeah. that at least? Can you tell? Mm-hmm. And then, and Roberts, you didn't hear it through the whole interview because we don't know what happened before they hit record um, uh, either. But you know, in that little post interview when they're walking away, you get that oh, wait the or it, the, the wheelbarrow might not have been true. Yeah, you know, or whatever he's saying there. But he, he's he's clearly it clearly got his his hackles up. When the officer said something about the wheelbarrow is a rumor. Right. Like, don't spread that any further. Yeah. So it kind of speaks to, seems like to me, what you're saying, that they all seem to have still this glimmer of hope that Becky didn't actually die in the fire. That would be some pretty quick manipulative thinking to come up with a response that's that indicative of a lack of knowledge or like uh, that, that line for him to, for him to say, so it's not true. That just seems like that'd have to be, you'd have to, you'd have to have like a, you know, a doctor, a Hannibal Lecter level of. Yeah. Wouldn't you just leave that alone and just like, let it glaze over and not go back to that? Yeah. Yeah. You'd want to yeah. like, okay, well let's, let's move on. Okay. I won't say anything, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that was like, for me, uh, the whole interview was like that. Everything was to me, it seemed like, Everything was too quick to – oh, one thing I want to circle back to before we wrap things up too is don't let me forget the confusing days. Yeah, yeah. Um, But 
everything everything just came quick and easy until he until he wanted to remember nine months ago when the last time he was up at the, up there and that's when it, you know things slowed For down. Sure. Uh, but but everything was just really quick. It was like yeah, I called her here, I called her here. Um, now at the beginning he mixes his days up, and and and, and I I have opinions about that, but I'm curious what you got. What what did you guys think? So this guy's sitting. So so we're, I guess we're looking at the mindset of. Is this a person that went up there, went on a hike with her and killed her, and now he's sitting in here with the police? Or is this the mindset of someone who was supposed to go hiking with her and canceled and then found out later she ended up killed that night? Um, what did you did either of you have any strong opinions about him kind of mixing the days up? I thought it was very clear that he Knew he was talking about Saturday the entire time, although he said Sunday initially. It was very unintentional to me. Well, see, he didn't yeah, say I mean, Sunday initially. He said yesterday uh, initially. Correct. Correct. Yeah. Although, yeah, although he was re- sort of referencing that um, mm-hmm. to me, like you said, it was a very quick cleanup, like in a, a almost a super simplistic way that felt very unintentional to me. Right. I felt the same way. It was an unintentional mix up. Um, did you, did you think anything about it, Dr. Scott? I agree. I just, it was not particularly notable to me. I mean, I, I don't know what day it is half the time, you know? <laughs> right. So yeah, what was notable, what was notable to me was if you're in the mindset of, I just, I know that I went up there and killed her and I was with her yesterday and now the police want to talk to me. I, I would, I would be expecting someone to. You know, defense attorneys always say that innocent clients are the are the worst because, the, especially yep. with alibis, yeah, because yep. they they're not paying attention. I would have expected him to have in his mind if he if that was the case. Okay, I need to explain where I was at when I saw her because I need to, I need to make sure they know I was somewhere else and not mm-hmm. here. But for him, it seemed like he was so unconcerned. And that, like you said, I, I, I agree with you, Doctor Shiloh, that it was it was it was unintentional. But the fact that it was unintentional to me makes me feel like he was unconcerned about it, uh, about which day it was. You know, his, he was like, yeah. "Oh yeah, yesterday we did da 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 da." Oh shit, that's the wrong day. Hang on, let me back up. And right, it was the right day. I just have a hard time imagining someone who was involved in the crime not sitting down with the police. And then telling them the you know the, not only telling them that what what you did on the wrong day, but telling them that you were with her at about the time of the murder, and then sure. and then realizing oh wait shit that was that was Saturday no it wasn't yesterday was the day we were going to go hiking it was it felt so unintentional that I felt so bad for him in this moment because I thought oh my god he must be losing it that now he looks bad <laughs> and he's probably and not said the same thing about that well it's <laughs> also you know it, this is also the danger of any kind of acute observation of of any kind of situation is the more you observe it the more you warp it right because sometimes it just is as simple as it is it was just a mm-hmm. flub and that's what happened possibly most likely i would think but the more we kind of like parse it and like well I just, I just overall get this feeling of sort of unawareness of, yeah. of what's going on. Like, even to the point of if he felt like he was under scrutiny uh, for guilt in this, that there would be so many other tells, so many other tells 
Um, right. So yeah, I'm. It's interesting, fascinating stuff. Yeah, the, the whole case, and, the, and there's a lot more to it. And I will, I will officially let you guys start listening to the season now. Awesome. Thank you, sir. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think if, if I were this investigator. I'd be pissed because I would come out of this interview not knowing what I had here. I would really be stumped. Just like, damn it. I wish I could say which way it went. Um, there's definitely not enough here for me to say that he's lying. Um, but yeah, I, I think as Scott started out, you come away a bit confused because it does seem like a pretty good candidate just based on, you know, when he last saw her and past relationship and things like that. But it's not matching up with the vibe that you get in the interview. Right. And there's a lot more to the victimology, too. So you have you know, just adding on now that you guys have, have gone through the, the interview. So Becky, I, I always take things back to arson investigating for me. And, and one big thing yeah. we always say is, you know, in the interview, what I'm always looking for is what changed something, cha- you know, a, a car catches on fire. And you're trying to figure out what's wrong with it. You start interviewing them. Walk me through your day. What'd you do? I did this. I did this. I did this. I did this. I got an oil change. I came here and my car caught on fire. I was like, oh, the oil change. That's probably, you know, yeah. that's, that's what changed or, you know, the, the, some change of routine. So in any case, Becky had a boyfriend that she had broken up with two days before this, mm. which I think probably had to do with the contact with Robert because they hadn't talked for a while. Then they kind of started talking again. I also know as part of the victimology that I haven't shared with the listeners yet either that there's there's more interviews with her friends throughout the the investigation that seems that 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 really seem to indicate that she was kind of obsessed with Robert. It definitely was not the other way around. Like she was, I think in one interview, Javier says that she had like a shrine to him in her in her bedroom. Um, and knowing that for me, so like I and that's why I said I don't want to share it too much because I know that. So yeah. when I'm reading him saying. Oh, she calls me and tries to make me jealous and does this. And I don't want to wow. go up there because it fits. That yeah. Is, make, yeah, that really illuminates that really. Yeah, it, so to me, that all seemed like it's like, well, that's from what her own friends are saying. Mm-hmm. That seems to make sense that he, where he's like, no, because I know that I try to be friendly and talk to her. But when I do, then it gets sucked into something and it turns into drama. And that's why I. And know, yet here he is. And he's all but like you pointed out earlier, here he is making an effort not to like uh vilify her yeah right you know but it's now but now you're also giving me more i get like now i'm now i'm really pulled in because <laughs> you're getting that, some personality disorder vibes yeah, aren't you Scott? Totally, well like behaviors flavors you know like we don't want to diagnose uh you know uh minors with personality disorders but it is very telling that she's engaging in that kind of behavior and that there's a lot of ambivalence in the way her quote unquote friends are describing her. Like, oh, I don't want to really talk bad about her, but like, uh, you know, there's a level of sort of indicated discomfort in the way they perceived her. You know, I mean, it, I can right. now I'm like, now I can't wait. I want to devour all of this because I, I think it was something else. And, and like we were saying before it was recorded, this area is sketchy. You know, there's a lot yeah. of stuff that goes on in those un- unincorporated areas of um, of that county. Yeah. And both of you guys have mentioned you're both familiar with the area. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. So, you, you know, yeah. So, th- there's a million possibilities. We've got a ton of investigating left to do. But this was, 
you know, it, it was a big first. It, it's like you just hit those roadblocks. Like, oh, it was easy. Let's break down her known timeline and we'll figure it out. It's like, she's doing this. She's doing this. And then he says, oh, she's supposed to go on a hike. You go to him. And he says, I canceled the hike. It didn't go. And then and now we've got to decide whether we believe him or not. And and where I came away with it was I, I wouldn't go so far as to say that I, you know, because you, you, you can't, right? I, I wouldn't go as far as to say, oh, I read the interview and I believe him 100% and he's good to go. But I, I, I will say from, from my analysis of it, I didn't, I didn't see any reason in this interview not to believe him right. when, he's, when he said I would that, agree. When yeah, there's just not enough. Go. Is there any history of violence on his part? No. Okay. No, n- no not before or after. Okay. Okay. The only thing that, you know, I made a little asterisk note of was if this was him, um, you know, probably we would see some indicators of violence before or after, but him getting suspended at work on Sunday could have been a trigger to some acting out behavior. You know, we often try and look for that in hindsight when we do this sort of stuff. Um, Just a note, just something that uh, I wanted to make mention of. You yeah. Know. Did you catch in the interview what he what what he got suspended for? I can't remember what it was now. So they weren't when the, the so he and he and Christian had put in the, they only had two more days left to work at the water park before because they were starting school and stuff again. They were oh, right. back to school. Right. And at the end of the day, they shut the water off to the to the water slides, and they went down the slides with no water on them and got <laughs> trouble. Nice. That was how they got. And got it, was, it. it was something Which like they were a, like, right? It's this innocuous sort of like like prank thing, yeah, as yeah. opposed to something that's you know indi- indicative of antisocial actions or behaviors, sure. right? And I'm sure he could go like, okay, yeah, we fucked up, we probably deserve that, rather than holding a grievance, which is what we see when there is something that's a trigger exactly. to yeah. violent behavior. And, and the, my understanding of it was it was something like they got they didn't get fired. They're just like you're suspended for a few days or whatever. But for they, two only days. Had, <laughs> they only had two days left to work anyway. So mm-hmm. essentially mm-hmm. they were they were done with. But well, that's good. Well, I, I appreciate your guys time very, very much. And um, uh, I don't I don't think we're ready to put Robert Pape in handcuffs yet. And and for me, I'm kind of I'm working on on uh, the, at least a basis right now of a timeline for Becky that. The the hike probably did get canceled. I think. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't. I don't know what you guys. I mean, and of course, we'll circle back to it and dig more and more into it. But it it sure didn't seem to me that there was that Robert was, you know, coming up with some big calculated lie to hide the fact that he went hiking with her. It just right, doesn't right, seem to fit with the rest of the way he's described what we know of his life or his operating. Right. All right. Well, I will let you guys go, guys. Make sure that you check out not only. There's two true crime binge episodes, one with each. We had you on separately, right? Yes. One with each of you. Um, that were great. We did a great, great case discussion. They had a lot of fun with that. But definitely check out LA Not So Confidential. Um, they do some amazing analysis of all kinds of cases every week. And it's just, it's fascinating. It's one of my, when I'm not listening to every other true crime podcast for true crime binge, it's one that's actually on my list that I listen to regularly. So. And you're um, you're more than job. welcome to listen it to on, listen to it on one and a half to two times the speed because our <laughs> podcasts are long. <laughs> and next time you come out, if you go to Pinion Pines, let us know at least so we can see you. But I'd also like to offer you private protection service so you're okay up there. <laughs> yeah, done, done. Next time, I'm up there. I wish so, you know I made a trip up there in January. And I had Jim Clemente was going to go actually walk the crime scene with me because he's, uh-huh. he's working on a profile. 
uh, of the scene for me. And I had all these interviews lined up. It was a great time to hook up with all of you guys. And I went and that was when that Omicron, everyone had COVID. Everyone oh, I was supposed sure. to interview had COVID. Jim got COVID. Everybody got. So I flew there and sat in my hotel for five days and flew home. Oh, man. You should have called you us. You should have let us know. Yeah. Yeah. Next time. For sure. Next time. Okay. Sounds good. Thanks, Bob. We appreciate it. I will let you guys go. And again, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you. Bye. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery, edited by Mike Bussing, and sound engineered by Shane Yoder. All music for the show was created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. All of our fonts across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design, and you can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining her website, TruthAndJusticePod.com where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. And a big thank you to our transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Kay Wood-Yomnick, Ginger Fiola, Erica Cantor, Danielle Rohr, Jennifer Ford, Courtney Wimberly, and Melissa Cardenas. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in several ways. To financially support the show, the best thing you can do is just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You'll not only be supporting the show, but you'll get something in return. On Patreon, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we have reward levels. For just $5 a month, you get access to ad-free versions of all of our episodes and behind-the-scenes bonus video content every week. Then other reward levels include t-shirts, hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. Just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You can also do us a huge favor by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the brands that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is to engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page on Facebook. And for all you tweeters out there, you can connect with us on Twitter at Truth Justice Pod. And I can be found personally on all forms of social media at Bob Ruff Truth. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. Say goodbye to the dish and hello to Sky Stream, the new way to get Sky over Wi-Fi. So you can get unmissable Sky shows like The Last of Us and Succession, as well as Netflix and Discovery Plus, and loads more, all in one subscription for £26 a month. Oh, and next day delivery with no upfront fee. Sky Stream, TV simplified. Head to sky.com. Requires Sky Stream and broadband minimum speed, 10 megabits per second, 18 month minimum term. Cut off times apply for next day delivery. Excludes bank holiday, 18 plus terms apply. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? 
Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.